Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, uh, there are a few trends and enablers that currently exist in healthcare that, in my opinion, are going to greatly contribute to and catalyze the reframing of healthcare delivery over the next few years and decades. Now, in our dialogue today, we'll be discussing at least one of them, and depending on where the conversation goes, perhaps more. The focus of our interview today is on virtual care and virtual health care, and our guest today, uh, Dr. Tom Hale, has spent many years leading the charge in virtual health care. He's one of the uh, experts across the country and leaders in this domain. I am super excited to dive into this topic with him. So many questions. Before we do, though, uh, and before I introduce uh, Dr. Hale, I'm going to make a request of you, members of this community who are interested in and passionate about creating new healthcare. If you listen to the podcast and you find value in this series, I urge you to share it with your colleagues. Very specifically, when you get back to your desk or your device, please go on LinkedIn or Twitter and talk about the podcast, the podcast series. Pick your favorite one. Uh, share it with two or three colleagues. I really think it's important not just to benefit ourselves, but if something does help us to share it with others, we have to grow this message. It's critically important to grow this community uh, if we're really going to change and transform healthcare in the way we all want to. Uh, so as I mentioned a moment ago, again, super excited about speaking with Dr. Hale today. Uh, so many immediate, relevant, pertinent questions I'd like to explore with him. Uh, Dr. Tom Hale is the Chief Medical Officer of VirtuSense, and I'm sure he'll tell us more about that. Uh, this is an organization where he and his colleagues are using virtual care to build value-based services for ACOs, Medicare Advantage plans, other at-risk models. He previously pioneered the development of telemedicine and virtual care at Mercy Health. Under his leadership, and he spent uh, at least seven or so years leading that charge, uh, Mercy Telehealth Services uh, launched the, the world's first virtual care center. I, I know uh, I have uh, read and heard uh, so much about it over the past few years. Now, prior to that role, uh, Tom led a 350-member multi-specialty organization as the president of Mercy Medical Group. Tom, such a pleasure to meet you and have the opportunity to speak with you. How are you today? Zeb, it's nice to be here. Always interested in, and excited to talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is the virtual care delivery and good patient care. In our correspondence, it's clear you're coming at this from uh, some very, very different angles with different perspectives, uh, very, very deep knowledge and hands-on experience. I'd like to begin our dialogue by reading something you wrote to me uh, in one of our correspondences leading up to this interview, and I want you to respond to it. You wrote, and I'm quoting here, we need to change the healthcare delivery model. We have created the perfect model of care delivery for the results that we are getting. Solutions are available. What we need is for leaders to change their thinking or we need to change leaders. Who benefits from the status quo? It's not patients. I just think that was eloquent to the point. Some very, very serious uh, statements here. Let's start, you know, unpacking that with what you wrote at the beginning around 
I guess I'm, I want to know from you and hear from you in your own words, from your own experience with whatever statistics you, you want to pull up, why do we need to change the American healthcare delivery model? I'm not sure it's clearly apparent to everyone. I know a lot of the guests and listeners to this program and in this community are in fact very aware, but I am very interested in what's wrong with American healthcare and with the results we're getting. Sure, uh, Zev, and, and I think that's the primary question because if you are of the belief that our healthcare system is perfect and everything's working perfectly fine, then you will not listen to what I have to say nor, nor believe uh, the, the substance that may be there. Uh, I'm of the opinion, uh, after now 40 years in healthcare, 36 with Mercy Health System, that the system is broken and it's broken. One can demonstrate because patients can't get care. Uh, try to make an appointment sometime. Very interesting. Be poor. It's not much fun. And what I find to be exciting, though, is that the actual delivery of medicine when a patient gets to a doctor works really well. It's getting the patient to the doctor, getting the patient to the the healthcare uh, ancillary services, getting the patient to the right information. That's what's broken. And that's what needs to be fixed. And that's what I've labeled the healthcare delivery model. Yeah, that's really helpful. You wrote in again, in that opening salvo, uh, I read that we need our leaders to change their thinking. And I'm very curious uh, about that. I've been thinking about that for many years myself uh, and have written about that, how to help people change their thinking actually. You know, do you have a picture in mind, a story, an example, you know, what and how? And I, I suspect as we have this conversation, that will come up over and over again. But just curious about that. Yeah, you know, I haven't thought of it that way. That's that's an interesting question. Is there a specific example? It would be nice if I had that written down somewhere, but I can give you one that is a more of amalgamation of a number of examples. Uh, someone goes to the, the CEO and and the, the question to the CEO is, you know, we're losing market share to wherever, Amazon, to Walmart, you know, the fear ensues. And what ends up happening, and this is pretty, this is just human na nature. This is just what happens to people is they, they go back and rely on all the things that worked before. And so, okay, we'll increase our marketing budget. Oh, we need more specialists or we need to put uh, an urgent care center in, a, in the middle of a shopping center so people can get to it earlier instead of pausing and saying, okay, why are we losing market share? Not what is our response, but why are we losing market share? Why aren't patients coming to our, our healthcare system? I told our CEO one time, I said, you know, and it's just like I said in the beginning, try to make an appointment sometime. You get an appointment because you're the CEO. You got a direct line. Walk into the emergency room sometime incognito. Not much fun. Clearly, access is a major problem. It has been for years. It hasn't gotten any better. Some of the data suggests, in fact, that it's getting worse. One of the reasons I'm so excited about virtual and digital is that uh, I believe that they are catalysts and enablers for really allowing uh, providers and healthcare systems to uh, shift their model. And I know you've talked about the fact that it's not just the technology. The technology enables new models of care. I'd love for you just to spend a couple of minutes describing what was Mercy Virtual? Uh, what did it look like? What services did you offer? What do you think some of the successes were? And, and then maybe some of the learnings, but could you just give our listeners a sense for those of us who aren't familiar with what you did? 
Uh, I appreciate that, Seb. And actually, it was, it was myself and a lot of other people as well. This was a, uh, certainly was a village that made all this happen. It was not a moment of clarity where all of a sudden we had an epiphany and said, you know, if we just did virtual care and digital medicine, we could probably do better care. It was figured out over time. We learned more from our mistakes, certainly, than from our successes. And we made many mistakes uh, along the way. But what we evolved into, though, was uh, the fundamental understanding that at the end of the day, patients want access to care. And the second thing we learned was that providers want to deliver care in a fashion that is accurate, uh, timely, uh, and also personable. It seems like, you know, that's certainly not an epiphany. Everybody could say that. But how can you do that in a healthcare environment? where there's not enough positions, there's not enough time, the economics do not reward you for providing preventative care or responding to, to people, keeping them out of hospitals. We had spoken earlier about the, that CEO, he or she doesn't get up in the morning and say, you know what, I think I'm going to make it difficult for patients to get in today. Instead, they are driven by the economic models that we put in place, which says the more you do, the more you make. As we evolved the virtual care model, we began to realize that not only are there economic models that say, if I provide value, I can make more, but also that patients adapt and adopt that virtual model very rapidly. So given all that, what did you build? What were the services offered at Mercy Virtual and how did you go about doing it? Yeah, so once again, and, and I'm a person that believes in fundamentals and once we established the fundamentals that you did not need to be in this, that you removed the geographic borders and that you began to use data, then there really was the, the sky was the limit as to how you could apply things. So we started first with the EICU uh, because that was the technology that was available at the time using VisiQ, uh, which I think is the, the majority of the software that people use. Uh, we moved from there and began to understand that if you can do that in the ICU setting, you can also do that in acute care settings, some of the e-hospitals. We had some hospitals where physicians weren't even uh, going in, in in some of our rural areas. And so we we established an e-hospitalist service and a nurse practitioner on site, uh, which uh, worked out very well. A couple of things we learned, though, I think was very interesting is that in the, and this is all about the relationships as it applies to virtual care, is that when we first put in the VisiQ model, it was a one-way system. The, the nurses in the ICU at the bedside could hear uh, the nurses in the central setting, and our compliance was about 30% uh, between the suggestions made by the central EICU and the bedside. We put in a two-way video. All of a sudden, they developed a relationship. Oh, that's Bill, or that's Sue, or yeah, I got it. Our, our compliance went up 60 to 70%, uh, more in a range one would anticipate. Uh, so now we began to understand, okay, it's a relationship as well as the technology. Then we moved to things like e-sepsis, where we uh, learned about workflows. We did the relationship with the two-way video. We gathered the data on patients. We selected the patients as 20% of the, of the acute care uh, admissions were at risk for sepsis. And then we, we put in our, our sepsis model, learned about patients early as they began to deteriorate so we could apply that clinical application. Uh, which has been known for 20 to 30 years, but has never gotten early enough to the patients. And then we learned that 
that in a workflow that we had developed, you'd call a physician first. And 50% of the physicians would say, well, they looked fine when I saw them last. Let's wait till tomorrow. And, and as we all know in sepsis, tomorrow may be death are certainly a, deterior, a significant deterioration. So we took that call out of the workflow and we developed a workflow that was more like a rapid response team. We decreased the, the morbidity and mortality significantly, but the one that always sticks in my mind is we, we stopped the deterioration of severe sepsis and septic shock by 95%. It is absolutely amazing. What year did you deploy the E uh, intensive care unit, the EICU? What year was that? Yeah, it was that was interesting about six, six and a half years ago. Uh, and, and so the corollary question is, why isn't everybody using that? Two things. One is uh, we lost our uh, Landron carrier, Dr. Veramakis, who was uh, the physician that was, and Dr. Taylor, who were extremely excited about the model. But secondly, what it required was a virtualization of the acute care room. Uh, and the only technology that's available then to virtualize the room was so expensive that we never got past the, the CFO. Today, it's entirely different. And you can apply this, two things you can do. And, and I mentioned this to you when we had talked earlier uh, over email. One is the selection process can be extremely uh, improved. And, and we used a very rudimentary data set. Uh, in order to make our selection now with data available and artificial intelligence, that can be much better. Secondly, the technology, uh, the company that I work with, VirtuSense, which is an artificial intelligence uh, a company that, that has technology uh, that you can virtualize a room for less than $6 a day. Uh, so now the technology has, has caught up, the, the data process has caught up. So my hope is that some of the learnings that we made uh, and that, we re, that we've uh, uh, followed will now start to accentuate on things like sepsis, the artificial intelligence that we use at VirtuSense can decrease falls in an acute care setting by 85%, can decrease falls at home by 70%. These are all things that, that are available today that one can deploy and, and utilize to her, uh, good patient care. You know, fundamentally, you know, when you say virtualize a room, whether that whether you're dealing with a hospital room or you're dealing with an ICU room or ICU bed where you know, someone's in there or you're dealing with someone at home, when you virtualize, what does that mean? And what is the, I mean, I, I can imagine people who are not deeply familiar with this scratching their heads and saying, I don't get it. Why, why do you need a virtual ICU person? You have an intensive care unit. Why do you need someone in some bunker somewhere or remotely overlooking, overseeing an ICU, why do you need a hospitalist that is a virtual hospitalist in a bunker or command center or offsite somewhere? Uh, why do you need a sepsis program that is remote and virtual? How does that make healthcare better? How does that uh, save lives? How does that prevent, like you were mentioning, falls and deaths from sepsis and people who are hospitalized? Could you dive into the you know, what is that benefit? What does it look like? What does virtualizing a room mean? And, and how does that actually save lives? Sure. Um, let me first give a, a fairly simple answer to the, the original question, which was, what does virtualizing a room look like? Essentially, it means that you put in a camera, two-way video, uh, and then uh, uh, the ability to be able to gather data from biometrics on a patient uh, uh, so that you can remotely bring in experts, nurses, support, clinical support without geographic barriers. 
Um, why do that? Two things, two things. And, and we learned this in the EICU because you, you got to understand that in, in our 44 hospitals that we had at Mercy Health System, we had maybe seven of them at the best that had actual intensivists uh, that, that had physicians in the intensive care unit 24 seven. Uh, and so we had a choice of trying to find intensivists for 44 hospitals, which was not only costly, but actually impossible. And secondly, uh, uh, we had to find uh, nurses with great experience for 44 hospitals, 44 ICUs. And that also was not only costly, but impossible. So what two things happen when you virtualize. Now you bring the wealth of your um, knowledge and experience of your health system to the point of care uh, without having to put them all on a train or a plane and bring them to the room at that point in time. Secondly, you're now caring for that patient, whether it be in the ICU, whether it be in the acute care setting, or more importantly, where it's at home, which was the what I think is our sine qua non final program that we put in place with, from an impact standpoint. And you're, you're gathering that uh, information on that patient as a movie rather than snapshots. Healthcare today, uh, without the ability of the digitalization and virtualization, is a series of snapshots. And, you know, if that's what we had, great. That's what we had. But we don't have to have that anymore. Now we can make it a movie. Uh, and that's why I go to the, the point of, of the virtualization, not only the, of the acute part of the hospital, so that it gives you the same intensity of care at much less cost as, as an ICU has, but also at home. Think of it. I mean, a, a patient has contact with a healthcare provider maybe, maybe 20 days a year. If they're really, really sick, maybe 60 days a year. That leaves more than 300 days a year. We don't know what the heck is going on with that patient until they, as their own personal alert system, raise their hand and say, I'm sick. I don't feel very good. I need something. And we react. How much better if we had this virtualization, uh, which, as you know, I've defined by technology, data, and relationships as a triad, and had that applied across the whole uh, healthcare continuum. I love that analogy that healthcare today is a series of snapshots, whereas virtual uh, care turns it into a movie. I, I think that's such a, a great way to understand it. Uh, and to your point, the, the danger with snapshots is that when things happen, whether it be, as you mentioned before, a person's in an ICU and something happens, their blood pressure drops, their temperature goes up, uh, some other uh, anomaly uh, that could be life-threatening, it's captured in real time and you have this backup of expertise that, quite honestly, is just not feasible. We don't have enough people to deploy them in ICUs across the country. We need this, and this is a way to really leverage the expertise. Let me give you another example, and this was a study done uh, from with our heart center in Oklahoma when I was at Mercy, and they had a number of patients that had implantables, so they could follow the, the data on those patients 24-7. Um, uh, and they did just to see uh, uh, what happens in heart failure. And the interesting thing is that uh, two weeks before you go into florid congestive heart failure and end up in the emergency room, which gives uh, maybe a, a two-hour to three-hour window before it's a total disaster, in two days, maybe you're gaining some weight and that you've got two days before it's a total disaster. Two weeks before you go into that uh, uh, setting, your, your heart, when you go to bed at night, your heart rate and your respiratory rate while you're sleeping go up. 
Now they don't go up enough that, that you become orthopnic or you have PND. You sleep fine. You don't know what's even happening. Yet that is an indication that the fluid shifts now cause stress in the heart, which is not compensating for it. And therefore you're seeing data in a movie setting instead of the snapshot. And you can intervene two weeks ahead of time before that deteriorates into that snapshot that says I have congestive heart failure. We learned the same thing in, in the sepsis model. Once again, snapshots tell you that I go in every four hours at best. And maybe I, as a nurse, and, and maybe I write that down on my, on my, my hand and I, I entered in the, the medical record four hours later. So it's eight hours between the time someone has a temperature change. We learned that, that once again, uh, even, even before your surface body temperature goes up, even before your measurable core temperature goes up, that your heart rate and your respiratory rate start to go up. Probably the body's response to that deterioration is beginning to, to occur from the, the release of all the things that are released uh, when the body puts up its defenses against infection. All these things require uh, vigilance. And when I say by vigilance, I don't mean uh, caring about the patient. I mean being able to gather that information about that patient uh, uh, rather than waiting for the patient to tell us things are, are actually deteriorating. I think many of us uh, still think of virtual as a substitute and, and a lesser substitute for in-person face-to-face visits, these episodic visits. And what I hear underlying what you're saying is we've actually redefined um, we've reframed, we've reoriented what a visit means. It's no longer this sort of when I walk into the room sort of thing. It's like, no, I'm in the room with you, whether that's in the intensive care unit, in a hospital bed, uh, at home. We are with you, monitoring you. As you said, the film is capturing the data in real time. And uh, the second point is that the technology now of course, now it's it's machine and you know artificially intelligence enabled, so we can really process data in a different way and make connections that we couldn't make before. The human mind just can't make. With your painting, is a much much more comprehensive picture. It's actually really virtual is really changing um, how we even think about patient care. I mean, does that make sense, or or how would you how would you broaden that picture? Yeah, a, a, a couple of things. One is uh, uh, so that's why. We, when we had the Center for Innovative Care, which evolved into the Virtual Care Center, we started with telemedicine, uh, which I like to, to uh, picture as television medicine. So you had that, that conceptual thought that we could have a face-to-face over a computer screen. That would be our, uh, our telemedicine program. We evolved to virtual care because we began, we realized that that was only one piece of it. And if you just speak from a communication standpoint, direct communication with a patient over a television or a screen, which is very good, is only part of that communication. You've got the communication that that's a synchronous communication is visual. You've got synchronous communication that could be chat. You got asynchronous communication, which is just as important, which could be email or text. All of those things then open up an entirely uh, different ability to be able to bring your resources uh, to bear. Uh, now, once again, this is not an epiphany. The, people have been doing this in the, uh, in the corporate world for a number of years. Uh, we have technology companies that are making billions doing this type of communication. It's just only recently that we've begun to apply this to healthcare. So the, the next thing, though, but from a virtual standpoint, is that you now have provided access. What we found was is that if p- patients feel comfortable that they have access to their healthcare provider, whether it's synchronous, asynchronous, 
in person over the tele, uh, health uh, uh, television monitors. They don't do stupid stuff. When we put the home uh, model in place, and when we use very rudimentary technology compared to what we have today, uh, but when we did the, the home piece, we took that 5% that spent 50% of the dollar, we put in monitors, remote patient monitoring and, and an iPad, and it was less the data that we collected. We decreased our cost by 60%. 60% kept them. We had one patient, uh, first one to, to enroll in the program, uh, had been hospitalized the year before eight times, had been in the emergency room six times. Uh, she had two cancers, was on homo two, and she wanted to stay home and play bingo uh, and give her daughters trouble. And, and so we put her on the program. Did we cure her disease? Absolutely not. She was eight months in the program. She stayed at home. She was hospitalized one time in that eight months uh, because of a bowel obstruction. It was only for 24 hours. And she died at home uh, the day after she played bingo, by the way. And what we learned was that Yes, we're following people. We're doing the sexy stuff that, that, that I suggested that you can do in the acute care setting and at home. But it's also just as important to have established that communication and relationship with the patient so they don't do stupid stuff. So they don't go to their neighbor because they can't get hold of their doctor and their neighbor becomes their consultant. And that famed consultant, the next door neighbor says, oh my gosh, you've got chest pain, go to the hospital failing to understand that the patient had just fallen and hit their chest and have chest wall pain. We know what happens when you get to the emergency room. It cascades into a series of, of unbelievable tests and utilization uh, that ends up being maybe a $30,000 hospital stay to tell you you uh, fell, hurt your chest, and you got chest wall pain. I just want to, again, underscore a couple of things you said, I, which I think are really revealing and important about you know the topic we're talking about, which is virtual healthcare, you know, knowing that I have an easy availability to access uh, at home and knowing that it's actually invited is really, you know, such a huge part of this. And I understand now why you say that, you know, you define virtual care as being made up of three things, technology, uh, data, and relationships. And I think it's that because, you know, my experience is most people, including quite honestly, my family members, my dad and others, you know, parents-in-law, very, very reticent about calling the doctor. Don't want to bother the doctor. How do I, you know, that whole digital front door, how do I even contact them, you know? And the notion that I could be connected very easily, sending emails and asking those questions as opposed to waiting or getting misinformation or making stuff up, quite honestly, which is what people do. I mean, they don't want to bother the doctor. They don't want to bother the system. Uh, and so you start to worry and, and make things up. And like you said, do things that may be misguided and harmful. So I, I'm increasingly understanding your that notion of relationship and how it can be proactive and preventive. And, and the other part of that, the corollary that I'm also hearing too, which is such an important point is that people, I think there is still this very legacy perspective that virtual distances people, that it disconnects people. You know, it's that, oh, I still want to see my patient laying on a hands. Well, the thing is, it's great that you're laying on of hands and seeing a person, you know, in that 10 minute block, you know, two or three times a year, but like you pointed out, the other 360, you know, four or five days of the year, they're not connected to you. And what virtual does is make that happen and keep that relationship going. And again, when you start to add the, the data collections that you were talking before, it completely changes what healthcare means. And so is that what you mean by relationship? I'm curious. I think they framed it extremely well. Uh, historically, you know, I practiced general medicine for, for 25 of those 
years as I was moving into virtual. And historically, when I came out of medical school, the only way I could think of a, and frame a, a relationship was when I was in the exam room with the patient. Um, that's changed. Um, and that's changed because the things have changed around us. Uh, now, you know, with, with social media and with the, the technology, but I'll give you an example. And, and, and uh, physicians are notorious to be, to be change adverse. Uh, when I was when I was president of the medical group and also practicing at the time, I, I suggested that, you know, we could do a lot better if we had nurse practitioners in the office uh, and we could then practice the top of license, so to speak. Although I think that's a, a little I don't like that word, but it, people seem to understand what I'm saying when I say it. And the pushback that I got was incredible. Oh, patients don't want to see a nurse practitioner. They want to see me. Well, it's this this inherent arrogance that we develop over time. I, I, I guess it's a gratification to keep us. Um, being able to survive the onslaught of managing patients, but we piloted in a, in a couple of offices. That I, I'm sure this sounds like I, I came from the, the Stone Ages because of piloting a nurse practitioner in a primary care office practice. And what physicians began to understand is that the, the nurse practitioners actually not only were extremely good and managed the patient extremely well, but that the patients over time would rather see the nurse practitioner in many cases was blow to my ego to begin with, which I got over. But once again, change is hard for physicians, but the understanding that there's different ways to do things and different ways to have that relationship. And now I have a relation. So I had a relationship. My team had a relationship with the patient, as did I. Now the asynchronous communication uh, becomes a relationship. Pa patients adapt to it much faster than physicians. They have to adapt to telemedicine and text and email much faster than physicians do. We just need to find a way to move it ahead. And that's why I said that and continue to harp on care model delivery. The delivery of, of care has to change, not necessarily the way we care, meaning when you are actually taking care of that patient, doing your diagnostics and your, your treatments. But no, the way we do that has to change. What are some of the common misconceptions, perhaps, and missteps as organizations try to deploy virtual care organization-wide, not just little projects or initiatives, but really try to deploy? What have you seen as, you know, if you could give, uh, you know, one or two pieces of advice, uh, major points in terms of errors that organizations make in, in their thinking about it, conceptualization about it, but also as they deploy it? Yeah, a couple of things. And it, you know, I think the one, the, you know, the elephant always in the room is what's the ROI? How am I going to make money? How, uh, what happens to the healthcare system if people don't come in the hospital? Well, that's all a fee-for-service mindset. And I, I think, as I told you, if you approach virtual care and say, how am I going to make this money, make money off of this in a fee-for-service environment? How can I bill for it? That's the first thing out of your CFO's uh, mouth. Don't start. You've already lost the battle. Uh, virtual care decreases utilization by its nature uh, because it stops the waste. It stops the stupid stuff. Uh, so therefore, the question is not, how can I bill for this? The question should be, how can we bring value to our patients? And once you get over that hurdle, then all sorts of things open up for you. Uh, because there is, once again, we had, we had talked about there are a number of value-based uh, uh, economic models that work extremely well. That is the bugaboo here. So I think everyone across the country is dealing with it. I know we are I literally just this week had a meeting and 
the first question that was raised, and it was raised by, uh, you know, our financial colleagues, which is fair, and they were in the room for that reason, was, you know, this is great. Um, we see how this can dramatically improve clinical care, clinical experience, clinical outcomes for patients. We see the tremendous value this is going to bring to everyone, except for one thing, how do we get paid for it? You know, no margin, no mission. I mean, it, it is a reality of being a provider group, whether it's, you know, you're just a, a bunch of physicians or whether you're a large healthcare system or, you know, multi-hospital system. The question is, how do you thread that needle? How do you, where do you look to do it? How would you reframe that question or that situation? So I'm going to approach that with three aspects to the answer, and and I'll tell the story first. And but the, the three aspects: uh, the one is the the story of the physician group. Secondly, is the development of a transition model because you uh, healthcare has invested trillions of dollars into a, a fee for service healthcare uh, model, and so you can disrupt, but you can't destroy. And then the third thing is uh, developing the economic mindset that says that the value is out there. So now we have to build the infrastructure around our healthcare providers because it is not their job necessarily to look at every patient and say, gee, how can I save money? Their job is to look at every patient and say, how can I take good care of this patient? So where I've, where I've seen failure happen in, in those three aspects that I talked about, particularly the transition model, is that okay, we're, we're going to put this care management program in place and the primary care physician is going to, going to do all the administration of that care management program. You've lost. Instead, we're going to put a care management program in place so the physician naturally can do the right thing and the patient can naturally do the right thing because we put the infrastructure in place in order to support that. And that's where virtual uh, shines. So I'll tell you the story about the physician group. There was a, uh, and this is a true story, by the way, a physician group in, in Florida, uh, the, the leader of the physician group is fairly large. It was about, oh, 200, 250 physicians of which you'd have the normal compilation, maybe 60 adult primary care physicians in that group. And, and he said he got up in front of his, his physicians and he was very well respected. So they, they listened intently and he said, this year, we're going to take risk. We're gonna, we've got 9,000 Medicare Advantage patients and this year we're going to take risk. Who wants to take risk with me? Raise your hand. Nobody raised their hand. He said, fine. We're going to take this risk on because we already have this contract. And so I'm going to I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to take all the risk. And I'll put the infrastructure in place in order to support this contract. And at the end of the year, I'm going to tell you how much I made. Okay, fast forward here. Came okay, I says, okay, we had 9,000 patients, remember, Medicare Advantage. Okay, we had a good year last year. You all got paid the way you're supposed to get paid through, you know, the, your, the, the, trans, uh, the transaction fees of Medicare. And uh, last year I made $12 million. How many people want to take risk this next year? Well, the funny thing is that the story is not only is, is that an, an impressive amount of money to make uh, from a profitability standpoint on, on uh, uh, 9,000 patients, but only a third of the physicians raised their hand. It took four years before all the physicians bought on, and which speaks to the change management. When we, when we took our, our program, which we did at home on that 5%, and we, we took the, the results, which were very consistent over, over hundreds of thousands of member months, if you apply that to the value contracts that you have in place today in a hospital system, and, and those would be ACO, MSSP, Medicare Advantage, your own employees, 
And for every billion in revenue that a health system has, there is $90 million after cost available in new uh, net. Uh, if you manage those, just that 5% of those value uh, value patients. I mean, the ROI is incredible, but you then have to, and that gets to the next two points, you first have to make a transition model. And I think the perfect example of the transition model, it ends up being, it ends up being actually a primary care support model because you want to grow the village. If you are only interested in feeding the beast, then you will lose. If, on the other hand, you know you have the beast that you need to feed, then you need to grow the village because you're going to decrease your utilization per member or per thousand. Example, if a cardiologist is happy if he has 100 procedures a year, just randomly, and he gets 100 procedures per thousand patients that the health system manages, and you decrease the utilization because things you put in place uh, decrease the uh, the testing and the hospitalizations, et cetera, et cetera. And so now he's only doing 90. He's not going to be happy. The CFO is not going to be happy. However, if you increase the population by 10% or 20% that you're managing, grow the village. Now he's doing, he's, he gets 90 per thousand now, but he's actually seeing, we're actually managing 1,100, 1,200 patients where we were only managing a thousand before. Now he gets his hundred. He's happy. At the base of it, that's the transition model. And I'm a movie guy. So one of my favorite, two of my favorite movies from healthcare, actually The Big Short, which which if I could short hospital systems, I would have done a long time ago. You can. But, and the other one was uh, Moneyball. And Peter Brent said to to the uh, Billy Bean when they first met, he says, look, owners have it wrong. They think they're buying baseball players. They're not. They're buying wins. And in order to get wins, you need to have more runs. And you'd have more runs than your opponent. And in order to get runs, you need runners. Uh, healthcare leadership has it wrong. They think they're buying procedures. And so they want specialists. They're not. They want patients. And in order to get patients, you buy and you build primary care because that is the door that brings in the patients. And in order, in order to build primary care, you have to build teams, but then you have to put the infrastructure in place that increases the communication, increases the the ability to be able to decrease the geographic borders, increases the ability to manage patients and contact patients 24-7, 365. If that sounds familiar, it's exactly what we've been talking about. That's virtual care. So now you, you have a nice transition where everybody's helped. I mean, every every model is helped. The, the utilization model, economic model is helped. The value model, managing patient is helped because you're, you're float all boats with the increased uh, population that you're managing, you grow the village instead of concentrating on feed the beast. And it's hard. It's hard not to think of feed the beast because that's what you've done your entire life as a healthcare leader. I got to have more cardiologists. The classic example to me is, is that we're going to concentrate on uh, cardiology this year. And so you go out and say, I have the best heart program, so on and so forth. You've lost, you've wasted your money concentrate on improving. And my father used to tell me, he said, don't worry about the money, do a good job and the money will follow. The good job is increasing and improving the communication with patients, bringing value to patients and being patient centric. And you'll make tons of dough. It seems to me that virtual is a incredibly powerful tool. And I, and I just don't think it's appreciated yet how much virtual and digital can actually serve as a catalyst and enabler for really uh, reducing and eliminating 
the disparities and inequities of care for so many reasons, some of which you've mentioned today. But I'm just wondering, you know, if you have a perspective on that and if it's something that we need to more intentionally focus on to actually make it happen. Yeah, it was a passion for me. So I, so I had the opportunity in the, in, the, in the beginning of my administrative career to go with a, a private uh, group of physicians, and they believed in the, the whole uh, uh, model of uh, value-based, and they made a whole lot of money, and I would have made a whole lot of money. Instead, I went with Mercy. And the reason I went with Mercy is because I was worried that we would destroy the, the healthcare delivery model that is at least in place for people to access. Now, why do I start there? Because this is extremely important to me. And and the reason I'm still doing this at my advanced age and the poor and underserved, there's a lot, you know, you can only fix, I can only make suggestions about what I know about, which is the healthcare piece. Access to care uh, in, in people who are not poor decreases cost, increases quality. Therefore, if A equals B equals C, then A equals C. Access to care should decrease cost and increase quality to the poor and underserved. I don't know how much impact that will be. I know it is. It's significant from a financial standpoint, and I know it's significant from a quality standpoint. So all the tools of virtual care which increase access uh, will have an impact on the poor and underserved. And not only that, but you save money and can reinvest it in their care. It becomes that teach them how to fish or give them fish. Let's teach them how to fish. Secondly, the variation in healthcare delivery across the country is abhorrent. People treat hypertension differently in in 50 different ways. I'll give you a story in just a second, but let me finish my point. If we decrease variation in care, which which virtual care by definition does, once again, you will improve quality and you will decrease cost. I first learned about variation, and I'm a product of all all my years in the, in the healthcare system from each each of my mistakes that I've made and learned from. When we got our cardiologists together and we said we want to five great cardiologists, love them all, uh, referred to them all, and and our group said we want to learn how. And this is back when we used Coumadin uh, rather than things like Eliquist. We want to learn how how you administer Coumadin and and how should we manage that, and we'll take that off your plate so you can so you don't have to worry about that. And so the first physician said what he did, ABC, and the next one looked at him and goes, you do that? I don't do that. Well, it turned out of the five cardiologists, they had five different ways that they did it. That kind of variation, while that's a, a, a minimal impact, is significant as you multiply it across the country. Uh, so once again, virtual care increases access. Virtual care decreases variation in care. It removes the barriers. It removes the geographic barriers. It brings the best of the best to everybody. How could it not help the poor and underserved? Can we create, can systems go into Medicare Advantage? Can they go into reducing disparities and inequities of care? Can they go into ACOs, any sort of risk-based models? Can they do that without virtual and without digital effectively? Virtual is not the answer. It's important, but it is not the whole thing. But without it, you can't. It's just like in a boat. Uh, you, if you have a boat and everything works except the, the engine doesn't work, you still got a boat, it still floats, you don't go anywhere. But if you just throw an engine in the water, it sinks. So you've got to have virtual, but it is, it is only sufficient. It is not, uh, not absolute. As I look around the market, you're seeing an explosion of virtual and digital 
health companies. I, I think that technology is, is, to your point, it's off the shelf. It's way ahead of what we're using it for right now. So the technology is not the bottleneck here. We're seeing all kinds of vertical mergers. You saw Teladoc and Livongo come together, You know, one of the largest virtual health companies combining with one of the largest and most successful digital health companies. You're seeing you know, Google and Amwell. Uh, you're seeing over and over again, payers using uh, virtual companies, in some sense, um, I'm not going to say going around provider groups, but uh, providing care virtually. You know, the list goes on and on. It seems to me that whether it's complex chronic disease, risk-based models of care, senior care, uh, wellness care, it's moving into this virtual and digital realm. And I guess I'm wondering, first of all, do you agree with the picture I painted? And secondly, you know, should traditional legacy provider groups, healthcare systems be concerned about this growing wave of virtual digital care that is literally in the market, just burgeoning around them? It's not just the new entrance. I mean, you look at CVS Health, you look at Walmart. These folks are, are not, you look at all the payers. These are not new entrants. These are people who have been in healthcare in one way or another for a long time and are accelerating their models. They are taking over things. It's not just, you know, kind of the walk-ins. It's now primary care. It's now complex chronic care. It's now senior care. It's now, I mean, it's just mind-blowing. I'm just wondering, are we falling further behind in terms of relevance in the future of healthcare? No, I think that's an excellent, excellent point. So it's a rhetorical question to say that, gee, is this accelerating? It's also rhetorical to say, can people make money at it? Because they obviously do. What, what's important is, is two things. One is that providers, I like to think of it, and I told my radiologist, I said, when you stop seeing patients, back when I was an intern, we used to go down and talk to the radiologist and see their x-ray, and we would discuss the case. They stopped seeing patients pretty soon. The patients didn't even know who the radiologist was. They now become a commodity. That's what's going to happen with the healthcare providers. They become a commodity. And here's the danger with the healthcare providers becoming a commodity. Who is the patient advocate at that point in time from a clinical standpoint? If you look at Teladoc, and this is not a shot at Teladoc per se, but Tele whatever uh, physician, their primary goal is to make sure that you get what you want as a, as a patient. Okay, well, yes, sounds like a wonderful thing, except that now all of a sudden, now the patient becomes the driver in the clinical decisions, the actual thought process that goes through and, and making that decision and it almost becomes like McDonald's. I'd like to have uh, a moxicillin cheeseburger, please. Pediatricians are great about that, by the way, because patients always call and say, my, my child's sick, I need an antibiotic. And pediatricians are great at saying, no, you don't. Let's talk about this. What happens is if the, if the physicians become commodities, which they're on, in the, they're on the road to do, and I'm talking about uh, physicians, specialists, the primary care physicians, specialists, and also hospitals. If they become commodities and there's not that clinical advocate for the patient, and then the patient, rather than getting what they need, get what they want, which may not be what they need. Uh, that's dangerous. Behavioral health, uh, one of the most challenging and to a certain extent shameful uh, stories in our healthcare system. It's such a huge problem, so uh, underappreciated, underserved across the board. It seems to me that the only answer, the only way through this is to really leverage digital and virtual. Just curious your thoughts about that. Yeah, I don't know. I have no, no doubt about that. And, and certainly behavioral health were actually one of the early adopters of the telemedicine visit. Behavioral health uh, deterioration can actually go back to the economic models that changed 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when they stopped reimbursing for uh, a lot of behavioral health. There was a lack of, of, of understanding of the value of behavioral health uh, by the providers, and they had, by not the providers, by the, the payers, 
behavioral health teams had no advocates at that time. So now now we fast forward and we are where we are. However, uh, all the things that, that underline uh, virtual care and virtual care delivery and care models like virtual care can bring those that infrastructure that will allow behavioral health to be able to, to function initially in a fee-for-service world doesn't, doesn't value them and therefore pays little. So therefore your costs are lower and your outcomes are better. But long-term, as we all know as physicians, that if one is well within their, if their mind is well, if their uh, uh, socioeconomics and environment is well, they are well, they do much better for all the, all the reasons that have been documented. So uh, behavioral health definitely has to be part of that virtual care infrastructure. It responds to virtual care. And it, we're just touching the surface on the, the collection of data and using artificial intelligence and in, in the administration of care for behavioral medicine. We're about uh, two and a half, three weeks from where we are today. It's, it's January 21st, 2021. And uh, President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have now uh, been confirmed and sworn in. And you somehow magically have been introduced to them, and you're literally shaking uh, President Biden's hand. You're looking across at uh, Kamala Harris, and you have 10 seconds to say to them, hey, listen, I am a physician and expert in virtual care, and here is a message I really just you know, want to share with you in terms of really helping us move this forward because it's so necessary. What is that 10-second soundbite that you're going to say to the president and vice president? Yeah, I've never seen anything in 10 seconds in my entire life, so that'd be really tough. But having, having said that, I'd, I'd say two things. One is that virtual care will increase access and decrease variation of care, and you will get lower costs, higher quality. So in order to make that happen, decrease the regulation barriers for virtual care and improve and support the economics around virtual care that brings value to patients. Thank you, Tom. You did a great job. You should be proud of yourself. That, I don't know if I could have done that. Tom, I, first of all, I just want to thank you for being with us today, for sharing your expertise and wisdom. It does feel like we're just kind of getting warmed up. I, I know there's so much more we could mine with you today. I do want to turn, as I do every episode, to our listeners, thanking you all out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients and, and just the members of this community who are really passionate about creating a new healthcare and a better healthcare system. I truly appreciate you for what you do, recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and uh, our society, and quite honestly, the future of America. Uh, folks, this is Zev Neuwirth on creating a new healthcare. Until next time, be safe and be well. <laughs>